Hi, welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. Today, we continue with the rule of the Chue military dynasty by talking about the second in line, Chue Wu, the son of the original Chue Chung Hun. Chue Wu, the first son of the founder of the military dynasty, Chue Chung Hun, took over after his father's death and ruled the country for 30 years. His reign was mostly a continuation of his father's in that he was able to carry out most of the political restructuring of the country that his father had started. But he is mostly known for being the unfortunate ruler of Korea when it was attacked by the Mongols in 1231. It would be Chue Wu's monumental decisions during this attack that would define him and his rule. I'll call him Wu in this episode to distinguish him from his father, Chue. Again, I'll be relying heavily on the book Generals and Scholars, Military Rule in Medieval Korea by Edward Schultz, published in 2000 by the University of Hawaii Press. By the way, I have been in touch with Professor Schultz via email, and he has been very generous with his time in answering some questions I had about the era. So shout out to Ned. Hope you're enjoying Hawaii. Also, shout out to Tron Knudsen, who's the digital publishing manager for the University of Hawaii Press. I try to buy the electronic versions of every source material that I, I find because if you travel as much as I do, that ex- extra convenience is worth it. Tron has helped me out a lot whenever I've had issues downloading ebooks, such as Generals and Scholars. So there isn't a lot of documentation of Wu in his earlier years. He was born in 1166, most likely in the capital Gegyeong. What's surprising is his father was said to be born in 1149, which means that Chue Sr. was only 17 when Wu was born. You see a lot of very young mothers during that era, but not so many young fathers. His mother is Chue's first wife, who is from the prominent Song military family. What we do know is that Yu Wu joined the imperial army at the age of 18 and served for about 20 years and continued to serve while he was dictator. Um, unfortunately, I haven't found a lot of information about his earlier life. There is, however, the incident of succeeding his father. When the time came for Chue Chung Hun to select a successor, he had two choices. He selected Wu because he was the first son and he was more talented and capable of the two brothers. Wu's brother, or younger brother, Xiang, did not take this lightly and so the two brothers faced each other in a sword duel and it ended in Wu's victory. Wu did not kill his brother but put his fate in his father's hands. Che Chung Hun announced that Wu would be his successor and Wu became the royal protector prime minister and leader of the imperial, imperial council. Remember, this really echoes what happened to Tres Sr. When, when he first took over. He also had a dispute with his younger brother, the general Tres chung over the younger brother trying to marry into the royal family too soon after Tres took control. Their dispute ended in a much worse manner, though, with the older Tre killing his younger brother in the street. At least with Tre Wu, all he did was banish his younger brother. As for succession, Chue Wu only emerges in the dynastic records in 1202 at the age of 36. And again, I'm kind of reminded of the the Kim regime in North Korea today. Succession plans are either kept secret or not revealed until an appropriate time. 
this is probably more out of concern for safety. If, like the Kims, you fear for the country's acceptance of your successor, then you do things in secret. We know that by this time, Choi Wu is a general and was already performing ceremonial duties for the king. The records indicate that Choi Wu was a continuation of his father's regime. In the last episode, we talked about how the senior Choi had begun to create a privately created administration alongside the existing dynastic structure. One day, one way he did this was using what Schultz compares to a quote-unquote kitchen cabinet or an informal group of close advisors that existed alongside the official lines of government. This harkens back to President Andrew Jackson's informal group of friends who his opponents labeled his kitchen cabinet, as opposed to the real cabinet, which they dubbed the quote-unquote parlor cabinet. In other words, the parlor is where you put your nice furniture to impress the guests, but it's in the kitchen that the family really makes decisions. Also, using a more contemporary example, it's somewhat comparable to Minamoto's bakufu, which literally means tent and refers to how the Kamakura era's real governance was not run in Kyoto, where the emperor was, but in a humble tent on the battlefield in which military officers such as Minamoto formulated battle strategy. In other words, in parallel with officials, rulers such as Chue, Minamoto, and Jackson formed unofficial circles of advisors upon whom they could rely for advice. Except in Chue's case, he turned his kitchen cabinets into official bodies. The most prominent example is a directorate which he named, quote, the Directorate General of Policy Formulation, unquote, or Gyojong Dogam. Directorates were not new in Korea. They were usually created with extraordinary powers for emergencies. But Choi Sr. turned this body into a permanent fixture of his government. And here's where we see the true genius of Choi Sr. Instead of trying to intermarry his kin into the royal family, he instead institutionalized his own administration so that it existed alongside the existing dynastic government. This directorate was Choi's first cautious foray into creating a permanent administration. He vested it with the powers for internal defense policy and policing. We should never forget that Choi and his son and his whole family are soldiers at heart. So in keeping with that, the directorate had many martial elements. In fact, the Gyojong Dogam was originally formed in 1209 in response to an assassination attempt on the senior Chue. So the records suggest that the directorate's original purpose was as a security force similar to the Dobang. The head of the directorate was imbued with a title comparable to a military general. Of course, the head was always from the Chue family. Because Chue had done such a great job of laying the groundwork for a separate government that his family controlled, alongside the existing dynastic government, when Chue Wu took power, he didn't have to rely so much on royal fiat. When Chue first needed to create a new agency, he had to do it on the sly as a kitchen cabinet first. But Wu just had to create a new agency, and it was done. So Wu further took the Gyojong Dogam and gave it powers of recruitment and ultimately overseeing policy in general. Wu also established the second most important body called the Jungbang, or the Personnel Authority. It too actually had its roots from Chue, 
who in their early days would have the ministries of civil personnel and military affairs come to his home to deliberate who should be appointed. Now, talking about kitchen cabinets, I mean, literally, Chue in his earlier days um, bypassed the the palace and all the official government buildings and had people come over to his home. So literally, he had a kitchen cabinet because his and I remember reading that it was a it was quite a palatial home. Uh, obviously, it must have been big if he was having like the heads of government actually meet there. But that's where most of the decisions were made, not in any of the official buildings. But it was Wu who was able to create an official agency and name it the Zhengbang. In 1225, the Goryasa notes, quote, Chue Wu established the personnel authority in his private residence to make recommendations and select civilian scholars. It was called the Pijachi. After Chong Hun took power, he set up an administration, or Bu. Privately, he set policy and made recommendations and appointments. He took men for his, from his group and made them transmitters, calling them politically colored transmitters. Those with administrative responsibility were of the third rank and called politically colored ministers. Those of fourth rank and below were called politically colored deputy directors, and they handled writing. Below, the, below them, those who managed general affairs were personal authority. So, uh, unquote. So I'm just giving you a, um, a taste of how uh, um, things were recorded back then. As you can see, um, I- I'm giving you broad strokes of how the governments were organized, but the records show that there was that their their government was very complex and had many many layers to it, and each each role was specifically designed. You know, just like any a real government of today. Wu also created the Sabang or the Chamber of Scholarly Advisors. All of its members served dual roles in the dynastic ranks, including in the Department of Ministries, the Ministry of Punishment, the Royal Confucian Academy, and a Ministry of Civil and Military Personnel. Schultz speculates that the Sabang was created by Wu to formulate a response to the Mongolian threat. It was a, mer- it was a merging of the civilians and the military that epitomized the rule of the Chue. It represented the overall goal that Chue had in trying to bridge the differences between the civil bureaucrats and the military, the root cause of the military overthrow of the government back in 1170 in the first place. In this sense, the Sabang represented a huge success for the Chues. As much as Wu was a designated successor of his father, heads still needed to roll, because although this was a planned succession, it was still an quote-unquote unsanctioned transfer of power. Remember that Chos were never the Chues were never officially the heads of the kingdom. The monarchy still was the, titula, the titular head, and the Chues were the shadowy puppet government. So at the start of Wu's reign, twenty-eight members of Chues staff were purged. Under his reign, Wu made changes to land and fiscal policy. He also reduced the corrupt practice of buying offices. On the personal side, Wu's first marriage was to the daughter of General. Zhang Sukcham, who you may recall in our previous episode was put in charge of the emergency forces under Chue Sr. After her death, Wu married the daughter of Te Jipsong, another military aristocrat. He also had several concubines, one of them the daughter of Sa Honggi, who would bear him two sons, one of whom would be Che Hang, 
who we will be talking about, would be the third in line. Sa Hongi himself was a minister of civil personnel. Choi Wu's daughter married Kim Yak-sun of the Gyeongju Gim clan, who could trace, trace his lineage to Shila kings. From the beginning, it seemed as if Choi had handpicked Kim to be his heir. He went to great lengths to promote him into positions of power. Unfortunately, Yak-sun became involved in a dispute that led to his banishment and eventual execution, at which point Wu turned to his own son, Hang, who had been sent to live in a temple as a potential heir. I wonder if Wu had used his son-in-law as a kind of decoy from the very beginning. But that's just my speculation. Choi Wu employed more civilians in his government than his father. As Schultz notes, quote, Of 96 men found to have dynastic civil ranks from 1219 to 1249, 69, or 71%, of all officials were men with civilian backgrounds. This was an increase from 54% during Che Chunghan's reign, unquote. Schultz writes that, quote, Che Wu also encouraged respect for civilian officials and institutions by reverting to a greater dependence on Chinese traditions. In 1225, he memorialized, quote, I request that our dynastic institutions and rites of music emulate Chinese systems, unquote. Remember, the Chues were always acutely aware that they did not have the heavenly power of the monarchy. Thus, they continued to fill the ranks of their administration with noble-born civilians and military officers. This is in stark contrast to the original military dictators who took over back in 1170. Remember, they, out of desperation as well as anything, promoted anyone who would side with them, whether they were slave-born or noble-born. But the Twez didn't do that. Wu did, however, succeed in integrating the military within the top government positions. Remember, that was one of the main reasons the military coup of 1170 happened in the first place, because the military had become so disrespected by the rest of society. Wu's government was chock full of soldiers. Twelve of the 38 in the state council were military, a third of the lower offices of the security council were military, and several officers were now to be found in the Ministry of Rights, once the exclusive province of civilians. Wu's inner circle of advisors, his kitchen cabinet, as it were, was made up of four military officers and eight civilians. All but three are identified as coming from families with previous government service. One of those was Wu's son-in-law, Kim Yak-sun, before he killed him, of course. Another famous member of Wu's administration was the famous Korean poet and man of letters, Yi Gyubo, whose brilliant poetry survives to this day. I actually have a, um, I, I downloaded a book of uh, poetry, I think called um, a Mirrors, Thousand Mirrors or something like that. It's free on Google Play and several of Yi Gyubo's poetry is there. And it's actually quite, uh, it's really beautiful. So Gyu, uh, Yi Gyubo actually passed the state examination under Jing Myeongjong before Choi Senior's rule. But it was only upon recognition by the Choi dynasty founder that he was promoted within the ranks, eventually serving in the lower ranks of the Security Council, before matriculating to the executive under Choi Wu. He would play a notable role in negotiations with the Mongols during this time, because he was said to have written appeals to the Mongols that were so eloquent and, and impassioned in nature that they drew tears from the Mongol emperor himself. 
One more note about art during uh, Choi U's reign. It has to be a short note because in comparison, U's dealings with foreign policy was much more urgent, as you will soon hear. It may seem like the Chues had the entire country's supply of noble families in their back pocket. But in addition to the myriad monk, peasant, and slave rebellions, there was a school of intellectuals who led their own conscientious objection against Chue rule. They called themselves, quote, the seven worthies of the bamboo grove, unquote. They were made up of seven of the top scholars in the country. As Schultz writes, quote, they took their name from a group of earlier Chinese poets and prided themselves on their knowledge and understanding of the Chinese classics. Many of these scholars purposely distanced themselves from the Chui leaders, and others were passed over in selection. Of the seven members, only Yi, Yilo, and Cha Tong actually occupied civil posts, unquote. So a few of them did take posts in Chue's reign, but they are notable for the writing style at the time, which clearly diverged from the Chue line, choosing instead to emphasize an escapist mentality from politics and indulging in nature. So far, we've talked about Chue's continuation of the Chue dynasty, his political maneuverings, and his strategic marriages. But the really important events that are happening during this time have nothing to do with domestic issues. I will be fully covering this in the next episodes. But you can't mention Chue U without take, talking about the Gitan and Mongol incursions into Korea. Because these monumental events occur right when Chue is handing off power to his son. So let's go in order. 1214, official handover of power to U, but I'm sure the senior Chue is still in charge. 1216, a huge nation of 90,000 Gitan crossed the Yalu River into Goryeo, fleeing the Mongols. 1217, the Gitan plunder and pillage Goryeo. Fall of 1218, Che Chungon suffers a stroke, which is the worst timing. That winter, 1218, Mongols cross the border into Goryeo, chasing the Gitan. This is the first time the Mongol army officially has ever set foot in Goryeo. Unfortunately, not the last. Early 1219, in the winter, Mongols, Jurchen, and Koreans lead a joint attack on Gangdong, the last Gitan stronghold. The Mongols visit King Gojong at the palace and force Goryeo into a suzerainty. Fall 1219, Mongols are spotted at the border, coming for their first tribute. October 1219, Chue dies. Wu is all alone. So imagine this, in the span of just the five years that I just mentioned, uh, the Gitan attack Goryeo, the Mongols follow them, Choe Chungon suffers a stroke, the Mongols uh, force the Koreans into a suzerainty, um, the Mongols start collecting really, really expensive tributes from Korea, demanding all types of things, Choe dies, and now U is in charge of the kingdom. Again, I'll cover in detail how Goryeo responds to the Mongols in future episodes. But I'll summarize because it's, it's, it's so instrumental to Wu's life. Basically, for the remainder of his reign, from 1219 to 1249, Wu would essentially be, essentially be managing the kingdom under Mongol suzerainty. It's a fascinating tale of accommodation, then battle, then defeat, then trickery. Anything they could do to placate the Mongols while coming up with a plan to throw them off. From 1219 onward, the legendary Mongol army would lay waste to Goryeo from north to south. They would attack six different times. 
When you think of all the places in the world that got hit the hardest by Genghis Khan, certainly Korea diverse, uh, deserves to be mentioned. The Goryeo army, land, and people exhausted and wasted. In 1232, Wu would make the monumental, fateful decision of relocating the monarchy and the capital to Gangwa Island, a small island just off the west coast near present-day Incheon. Again, I'll cover this in, uh, in uh, detail during the Mongol invasion episodes, but here's a taste of how that fateful move went, as told by the Goryosa. Quote, At that time, there were frost and rain for 10 days and mud filled the roads, sinking people to their shins. People and horses died. Even wives of high officials and rich households went barefoot and carried their loads on their heads. The crippled, widowed, orphaned, and homeless lost their way and cried out. Their numbers were countless. Unquote. In 1249, Chae Wu is recorded to have died suddenly from disease. He did stick it out to the ripe old age of 73, which is pretty good considering he was in the middle of an invasion by the Mongols. Power was handed over to his son, Chae Hung. We'll cover that in our next episode, and with that, I'll leave you for now. Oh, my God.